Hello, I'm Richard Edgar, back at the mic after a few months' paternity leave, and a big thank you to Carson Römholtz for standing in so expertly while I was away. I'm sure we'll be hearing more from him in future. Now, before I left at the end of last year, the world was a very different place. And these conversations with Fidelis' chief investment officer were dominated by COVID and tentatively mapping the path of a return to normality. But the pandemic or pestilence, hasn't gone. And now we have war in Ukraine. And as a result, the threat of famine. Apocalyptic days? Well, listen on to hear Andrew McCaffrey's thoughts. Hi, Andrew. Thanks very much for joining me. It's great to see you again, Richard. That uh, wonderful to be back and uh, having you in the seat again. Thank you, thank you. Well, listen, we're recording this at the end of um, another turbulent week for markets. But rather than diving straight in, perhaps you can bring me up to speed with your reflections as an investor on the state of the world five months into 2022 and the policy responses that we're seeing. Yes, of course. Um, I think one of the key things is going back um, to you know as we enter the year that our base case view was that um, we had stagflation in our future because we already saw the signs of uh, an element of structural uh, increase in some of the parts of the inflationary impulses. We saw uh, signs that um, that very strong growth that we had had was actually starting to not only peak but roll over. And certainly, um, you know, when we look to some of the challenges that were uh, already evident in China, but also starting to feed through in other parts of the world, just as uh, we were uh, coming into 22. But it felt relatively benign um, in reality, and it was how we were going to navigate that. And also that we had a very hawkish narrative start that had been building up from the uh, the central banks, really that, you know, that obviously has accelerated as we come into this year, but that was being driven again by a degree of, um, uh, you know, concern about what, how the inflationary forces were um, developing at the, the time. I think, you know, as we roll forward that five months, that what we've seen is that, you know, those inflationary um, pressures actually have been even greater than expected in terms of the numbers we've seen, but also what seems to be the sort of momentum uh, there in some ways around, again, some of the structural um, elements. Uh, we've also seen, though, that um, sadly with, uh, you know, as you highlighted, that COVID, um, you know, has not gone away. And it's, certainly it's been a very big influence as we look to China and the degree to which slowing in that economy and uh, and the impact um, that we've had from the lockdowns has been you know, very evident. Um, and so our hopes of a quicker turnaround there have been certainly dashed. And um, I know we'll come back to that uh, as part of the conversation later. Obviously, that very sadly, we had, um, you know, the war in Ukraine start at the end of February um, and that you know really having an enormous impact through the energy through the food channels um, but also that that impact not only is a consumption tax that's being felt more for some economies but also that uh, the flow through in terms of you know uncertainty and raising for governments the issues of uh, security around defense around food and around self-sufficiency and really accelerating some of those challenges again that we'd seen about bringing supply chains closer into borders, um, you know, trying to make sure that there was security there. And that's just emphasised that point. So these things all playing up to a much less um, comfortable environment for markets. 
um, you know, much more concern about where uh, we're seeing those inflationary pressures uh, going, and so you know, yields rising with that. And that stagflationary view we had, we accelerated with the war taking place and what that meant. But as we get to um, to today, most probably some of these things actually are seeing a little bit of a, a peak in some of those forces at work. And the next risk is what actually is the growth outcome as we look for the second half of the year and into 2023. So where are you then, Andrew, in, in where you think growth is going to be um, as we go from here? Because far from being a flash um, crisis or a flash war in Ukraine, it seems to be looking much more entrenched in every sense. What impact is that going to have um, around the world beyond the humanitarian crisis that there is in, um, in parts of Ukraine, of course? One of the themes that we called out, uh, Richard, for uh, uh, this quarter was uh, you know, thinking about the duration of the um, war and uh, how that would play back into certain channels, um, obviously into the broader economy. Now, the first one is that if this is something that is drawn out over time, it will continue to create tension and problems through the energy market, but also through uh, food. And uh, obviously some of the, the key elements of that are around harvest for so many things that we uh, you know, have huge amounts of um, production in the world that come from uh, U- Ukraine as well as from Russia. Now, with that in mind, it suggests that structural sort of uh, you know, um, challenge that it implies about prices, but also the other side of that is the consumption tax element. And where can we see the risk of demand destruction because it becomes such a high part of income at uh, uh, you know, for many societies that uh, there is a recessionary sort of influence that then starts to uh, to take over. Now, I think this is where it's very different around the world. I think the European um, economies are far closer, but also they're impacted more by you know, some of these um, channels being so difficult, especially the energy one, because of the amount of uh, Russian energy production that uh, is utilised and trying to work their way off that, but also the reality of what it implies for keeping prices up and that uh, you know, challenge back into industrial activity as much as consumption. In summary, are you um, more pessimistic then about Europe than you are about other parts of the world? I think that uh, we see that the growth uh, risks in Europe are much greater and our base case has moved towards more of a recessionary outlook for for Europe. I think where it's different in the US is that uh, we're seeing much more resilience through consumption um, support and that being the savings built up, the willingness to use credit, uh, the relative health of the, the banks in the, the US as well that um, supporting that and the degree to which we have seen a uh, degree of wage traction um, that is greater um, through uh, different levels of the socioeconomic um, structure that uh, I think you know, those are helping to keep the US running at uh, slightly better levels. But what it means is that what you may see is that for Europe, it looks much more uh, that uh, that demand destruction comes through quicker. For the US, what it may be is we have a bit more of an inflationary bust type environment where things keep running for longer, but then you hit a point that there's real demand destruction, and that may come later. And that's why I think the growth profile, and uh, when we look at the policies at the moment, you know, are actually remarkably divergent around the world for you know, the first time in a long time, and how we're seeing that manifest itself through certain parts of the uh, financial markets. Um, because you know, last one I would re- reference is going back to China. That you know, there you've had a very difficult time. Growth has been much lower than expected. There's likely to be more stimulus in some areas uh, coming through, uh, and you know, something that uh, I think an important element of again, just thinking about that divergence of economic activity, relative volatility of activity picking up, 
and then how policy uh, is set um, as a consequence of that. We'll come to um, the policy response then. Um, You've talked quite a bit about um, inflation because it's high, it's rising, it looks like it's going to remain so. Now, um, I noticed this week the Atlanta Fed publishes a measure of sticky inflation, which I confess I didn't know about um, until this week. But the sticky price inflation index, which measures prices of goods and services which are fixed far in advance, which by definition means that they're hard to bring back down again. It's at 30-year highs. But Jerome Powell of the Federal Reserve, he seems to be managing expectations down about the pace of rate rises in the US, at least. Yes, and it's something that we've... um highlighted quite a lot in recent weeks is that you know we believe that the market has done a great deal of work but actually has got beyond where the fed really want to go so now you know you have this position where this very hawkish narrative discussion of 75 basis point rate rise at the last meeting which obviously uh, turned out to be 50 uh, a consequent sort of walking back that we're not looking at 75s we're looking at um, 50 basis points going forward and his reference um, uh, to that being the same for june july um, so just trying to manage those expectations but Part of that, I think, is um, coming down to the fact that uh, you know navigating what I think is a very, very narrow pathway to get to the proverbial soft landing is that you have those structural forces, and and the structural forces, and to the point of the sticky inflation index, is that you know, you have this coming through into what I would um, argue is some of the movement in supply chain needs. And also when you look at the uh, challenges had around bringing people back into the, the work um, environment, how that is uh, in the US especially, you know, not just the, the numbers, but the level of um, what's required to be able to bring some of that supply chain um, changes into effect, but also to meet some of the demand that are saying that that consumption profile has uh, stayed high. And so what you've got is some of those long-term forward-looking elements of um, what always had been uh, you know, an ability to, to price down or there'd always be competition coming in to, uh, to manage against that has actually uh, you know, now seen the opposite where you know, competition actually dropped that the um, uh, demand price stayed high the supply challenges have stayed there and so being built into uh, to contracts going forward and actually those prices um, you know, sticking to a degree now and that goes back to my earlier comment that when you think about demand destruction it may be um, delayed, but I don't think it will be, um, you know, ultimately be able to just ignored. But growth clearly is showing signs of uh, not only peaking out, but as I said, rolling over. In some cases, it's actually been remarkably weak. And that is where I think, again, you've got this very divergent policy profile. But for the US, there will be a desperate desire to make sure that you know they do try and navigate that narrow pathway that they don't tip it over into um you know full-blown recession you've talked then about the the risk of making a mistake and um you've now gone down to a tightrope um a very narrow path to this um soft landing um we weren't talking about soft landings before but now they are on the agenda what what do you reckon the chances are of um, the, the Fed and other central banks around the world guiding economies to, um, you know, a slowdown certainly, but not not a disaster. I think they will struggle to hit that soft landing, you know, narrow strip. I think that we will see more volatility in the economy because we will see minor or possibly major mistakes. What you have that's so interesting is that you know Japan almost supercharged, um, uh, you know, the support and, and liquidity provision by, uh, you know, stepping in again on basically, you know, 
your size is our size times two in the bond market to keep yields down and the yen reflecting that but also that um, you know at the same time that we've had you know US pushing up um, uh, yields uh, that you know Europe and arguably UK caught um, in between this and some of the emerging markets either getting little tailwinds or getting quite big headwinds that um, uh, having to, to navigate but I think when you pull this together that the challenge as we go forward is that um, you know the the US that we're likely to see that they're going to try and having seen yields take us to a point that they feel most probably you know is at or beyond um, where they want to see policy actually tightening to in their actions that they try and pull us back a bit. I think in China, you know, we're at the point where. Now it's stimulus going forward. Currency has allowed them to give a little bit of um, support there, but also you know, monetary policy, fiscal policy, all align in the same way. So Q2 could be quite an important quarter in terms of just balancing out um, you know, the economic uh, challenges that we had seen. And obviously if COVID, that we have a point where they move from the sort of full lockdowns. I think markets, along with regulatory um, insights that are no longer this incremental adding of regulation, that that stops, you could have quite a positive environment um, occur there for uh, the market as it looks forward to a a better economic um, outlook. Okay, Andrew, so um, you've described very thoroughly there the difficulties there are in the world, the way that policymakers, whether it's central banks, whether it's governments, are having to uh, to deal with things, the different concerns that they are now having to uh, incorporate into their plans, short and long term. This makes it all very difficult, doesn't it, for investors? You've got all the volatility that you've described. You've got bonds and equities correlated um, in a way that they haven't been for, for decades. How are you dealing with it? How are you um, treating the core asset allocation view at, uh, at Fidelity? Well, I think the first one, uh, which is that you know, we've, we've been cautious um, on overall risk levels, and obviously that has been helping as we've seen uh, you know, the challenges sort of uh, rippling through markets and coming into to the risk assets um, uh, world with what we've seen for stock markets um, and credit markets. So you know, that view that um, we're not changing at the, the moment, that um, obviously as, as markets come off, we look to uh, uh, whether there are any uh, explicit opportunities and to, to reposition um, uh, you know, where we feel that markets have obviously relatively and absolutely um, maybe overreacted. But you know, within that, I think that there's a little bit of a strategic versus um, tactical perspective as well. Strategically, we're thinking more about how some of this um, structural changes, so i.e. as we look forward, that the bias of risk, even though I've said that we think that the Fed's going to try and sort of pull back a bit from where markets got to and the expectations there, over the years ahead, we're likely to be in a cycle where because of that structural inflationary forces, um, because of the, the need to uh, you know, try and address that through time and, and again, sort of navigating a different pathway. But it will mean that you know, rates and yields are likely to be heading higher. Now, if that is structurally going to be the way uh, you know, through time, then I think you've got to start thinking about you know, what are the exposures that you want in that increasing yield um, environment. And you know, that brings you back sort of equity markets, as we've seen, you know, 
value orientation, but you know, sort of high quality, shorter cash duration type thought processes um, winning out. Also, you know, defensives within that um, profile as well. And I think that may be something that you know have to think that has longevity to it over time. And so, you know, really challenging environment for um, you know long duration cash flow growth orientation that um, uh, you know, we've seen that has run so well and driven markets um, in especially in equities for so long that uh, that could see quite a significant and maybe even uh, you know longer term uh, uh, repositioning where are you shifting um, uh, assets at the moment yes yeah, so what it means is that um, there's two ways in which that plays through one is that looking a little bit more for um, you know within equity markets those um, uh, companies and sectors where we can actually generate the level of slightly defensive qualities, slightly more value orientation, being focused on how we get uh, you know high quality sort of income in payback. So those companies that um, have that strength of balance sheet and cash flow that we think that they have that pricing power and so can maintain um, uh, the the payments and that. You know, it's very, very different to where we'd seen the gravitational pull of markets towards growth and towards that, um, uh, you know, leaders um, in that space. I think it also means as a consequence that, uh, you know, when we look around the world, you're also looking at where are valuations that have already moved to discounting, you know, as we've discussed, real growth challenges and even recessionary levels. And the reality is we look around the world, you've got more of that developing in either idiosyncratic opportunities, say in Europe, and looking to some of um, retail and um, other sectors where you've seen some real challenges of manifesting to um, you know, very dramatic re- repricing, or to look into China and, some, and, uh, and Asia where you're getting uh, valuations um, in P's down into you know, single figures. You've got very attractive individual companies that have great businesses that have been marked down to almost imply you know, recession. So I think that's where we're looking is a you know, it's a little bit more uh, micro than, than the macro, but that feeds up into then how our exposure, um, you know, at both a country sector and um, through to company level plays through. The other part, though, is that in credit, you know, we've seen more recently and we've been defensive on credit, but now that that's starting to uh, widen out and actually some of the challenges there in terms of funding because of these risks we see going forward. And so in that, funny enough, as I said, that one of the ways to play is that you take on a bit of duration risk, but in um, you know, government markets and rates, just to reflect that we think that we've got to the um, uh, you know, far enough in terms of the, the uh, you know, rate expectations for the moment, but credit still to uh, to reprice on some of those uh, you know growth risks that lie out there. Where we've been you know very constructive um, on China government bonds as a diversifier, actually now you know some of the things that we had touched on where at some point allowing the currency just to weaken a little, that most probably you know com- competition in where yields are and spreads are that uh, you know we still think they have strategic value, but you might find that tactically. Um, that uh, you know, they actually go into a, to a period where you know, they don't perform as well, given those um, currency conditions. But where, as we look to for some of the developed market, um, that you could see that duration has some value, as I said, as we come off of that um, uh, you know, peak pricing this, uh, you know, through the next few weeks. But that, that's where we start to move into the tactical considerations, as opposed to maybe some of those more structural shifts and strategic thought pr- processes.
But it definitely seems that uh, the tide has, has changed since you and I last spoke. It's going out. You've got to keep your eyes peeled for the individual boats that might be bobbing around. Don't worry, I'm not going to um, stretch this metaphor too far. Um, but one, one final thought. There are still opportunities in equities and bonds. Um, I know that you're very keen on alternatives. Um, it's been a difficult um, week this week when you look at things like um, cryptocurrencies that have you know, had a complete rout, uh, particularly the, the ones that are meant to be um, stable and that they're they're proving not to be. Um, how do you feel at the moment in the world of of change, of volatility about alternative assets and um, the um, how they are performing as they go through these tests? Yes, I, I think you've got to differentiate though uh, in there. There's a, there's a very big difference um, between what I would call our very uh, you know, high quality private assets and, and those that actually will be really important because one of the elements of you know, sort of drawing together the, the structural um, changes that uh, have been touching on in our conversation is that, um, you know, you want to look for real income. You know, income in and of itself may not be enough. It's how do you make sure that your income is rising with that inflationary force? And maybe that, you know, we've lived in a, uh, the last 20, 30 years where uh, you've always had this disinflationary force you know, flow through and that's bailed you out in terms of giving very high real returns. Well, that may be challenged going forward. So how can you make sure that rather than a, an, an income and a nominal one that could be eaten away at, that actually you're getting that real income increase? And that's where you know, real estate, um, infrastructure, the way in which the contractual income uh, you know, has inflation uh, increases embedded becomes you know, very important to be able to, uh, to access. Um, I think high quality, uh, you know, maybe shorter term um, you know, cash flows in uh, you know, lending. And so that uh, you know, relationships into high quality companies that find more in the uh, direct lending private space actually um, can have value. But again, you know, not losing sight that a lot of what I've said leads to there being a default cycle at some point and one most probably big one we've seen for, for a while. So navigating that, understanding the individual credit analysis is going to be vitally um, important, but there will be opportunities there. The crypto, I think, is what's been interesting. Is again, you know, this is still a very young industry and activity. And so you're, you're seeing, uh, you know, some of the elements as a natural business that winners and losers, you know, what does leverage mean and how do people um, manage it? What is, what is the real speculative versus the sort of structural underlying um, you know, development and evolution of business? And I think that, uh, you know, what we're seeing is partly running through markets and through um, the crypto market is, is again, you know, when you find these waves will flow through as volatility picks up as, you know, basically other um, asset class losses can feed through into uh, an impact onto, you know, your thinking and how you then respond. And also the degree to which, as I said, going back to leverage in the system, which sometimes I think we forget there's lots of it. And it's just how close that is to um, the edge and how much there is that will be impacted by you know, rate of change and level in terms of the, the yield increases that all of a sudden you know, become a real issue as opposed to being something that can be managed or, or deferred. So there might be very different assets and very different companies, but actually it's the same principles that apply. You've got to pick, pick your winners. I think you do. And I think that will become even more important because uh, you know, some of the elements of this volatility in economies, um, the changing of supply chains, the winners in terms of the companies that you know, have planned and can you know, access and manage and have pricing power going forward, 
the benefit, I think, of always having that rise in um, you know, sea level that um, takes the boats nicely out um, uh, you know, to, to enjoy the view. There's going to be many that unfortunately um, you know, stuck in the mud or um, lost below the waves shipwrecks on the horizon. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. I, I promise that's the last of the sailing metaphors that we'll have on this um, on this recording, for a little bit anyway. Um, thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for listening. You can read more from Andrew on uh, the topics we cover today on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do like, share and subscribe. The producer today was Holly Eastman with technical support from Alex Wilcox. For now, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.